it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. You're in the right spot. Thanks for joining us. Every single weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and then around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, which is available, among other places, at GuyBensonShow.com. To newcomers, we always give a special warm welcome. If you don't know me, I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on with Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. Eastern hour. Looking forward to that. I'm also host of this fine program, the online home of which, as I mentioned, is GuyBensonShow.com. We've got our first guest coming up shortly, and then later this hour, Ilya Shapiro will join us. Ilya was until very recently on the faculty at Georgetown Law. We talked about his ordeal on this program a number of times. He tweeted something that some left-wing activists and students got angry about, and the university decided that he needed to be suspended pending an investigation, and the investigation dragged on for months. They finally reinstated him. The whole thing was a joke. Other terrible misbehavior, by comparison, on social media by other members of the faculty, overlooked, ignored, defended by Georgetown. They were all leftists. Shapiro is a conservative. So at long last, Georgetown decided, okay, we found this technicality, so you're off the hook, you're reinstated. And he responded to that that earlier this week by saying, thanks but no thanks, I'm out. In a scathing resignation letter to the dean. Ilya will be here later on this hour to talk about the whole experience. And then in our final hour, Josh Krasauer of National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst. He will be here not only talking about a few of the recent primary elections that are still coming into focus, but some that are taking place today, including a handful, I think, that are especially intriguing out in California, including but not limited to the recall election of that left-wing, soft-on-crime slash pro-crime district attorney, Chisa Boudin. His fate will be decided by the people of San Francisco today. Polls closing around 11 p.m. Eastern time. So that's where we're headed on the show today. I've got a few other things to share with you and to mention along the way. Some new polling. We've got these primetime hearings of the 9-11 committee coming up on Thursday night. I have some thoughts on that. We'll get to that a bit later on. But just moments ago at the White House, we heard from actor Matthew McConaughey who is, I think, safe to say an A-lister. He's a big deal. He's famously from Texas, big Longhorns fan, and he is originally from Uvalde. And we'll mention this a few times on the show today because I want to help promote 
an interview that he's got scheduled this evening. Matthew McConaughey on special report with Brett Baer in the 6 p.m. hour Eastern on Fox News. That'll be interesting. But McConaughey was at the White House just a few minutes ago, and he was addressing the shooting in Uvalde. And it's personal for him because that's where he hails from. And it was emotional. I think for the most part, he tried to stay away from the typical partisan back and forth and that whole fray. He was, again, at the Biden White House just about 15, 20 minutes ago there at the podium in the press briefing room. And then he will be on Fox News down in D.C. with our colleague Brett Baer tonight. Here's just a sense briefly of part of what McConaughey had to say. Cut 31. Look, we heard from we heard from so many people, right? Families of the deceased, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, Texas Rangers, hunters, Border Patrol, and responsible gun owners who won't give up their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And you know what they all said? We want secure and safe schools, and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. So, we know it's on the table. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. So he just went down a list there, a lot of which speaks to me. We need more secure schools. We need mental health investments. We need family values. We need American values. He talked with reverence about the Second Amendment. He talked about keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people. That could be a reference to red flag laws and other things. Joining us now is Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports, along with John Roberts, every weekday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on the news channel. And Sandra, good to see you. First Which is of all. why I'm late, because I was covering Matthew McConaughey's moment at the White House there. And, you know, he he was very clear about that in the piece that he wrote um, in the Austin newspaper, uh, saying that red flag laws he believes should be the law of the land. He says that we should raise the age on purchases for assault uh, weapons to 21 years old, unless you are in the military, to remain at 18 years old. Uh, background checks he's calling for, among other things. So, you know, it was a passionate plea to do something in this moment that he says, uh, in the wake of another mass school shooting, feels different. Uh, growing up in Uvalde, he very clearly detailed that's where he learned to master the control of a of a gun himself. Um, so speaking, he said, as an American, as a father, um, as somebody who cares about this country, um, this is what he believes is a moment for both sides to come together and enact responsible changes on our gun laws in this country. And I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people were listening to him. Um, and it was, it was definitely an incredibly sad moment to, to remember the names of each of those well, he, he babies. He had these victims. beautiful tributes as well. Yeah. And, Not with the families. And look, I, I get it. Some people, Sandra, might look at this and roll their eyes and say, here's a Hollywood celebrity coming in to parachute in and talk about this thing and push some liberal agenda. I get that instinct. I think the fact that he's from there makes it more of a meaningful connection than just a, a random celebrity or actor. 
And I didn't feel, and maybe this is just him being a good communicator, but it didn't feel to me like he was trying to push some sort of divisive agenda. It sounded like he was trying to find certain areas that we've talked about on this show where there might be some agreement, and it's not only about guns. I think that's the category error that drives so many conservatives crazy, mm-hmm. where it's like they, they blame the guns, they by extension blame gun owners, and they don't want to talk about any other ideas. And that was not the approach of McConaughey at all. Uh, he actually uh, he talked about um, you know paying more attention to mental health. He called for restoring family values right. uh, in this country. Um, Safer schools. Really important stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I just wanted to see what your overall reaction was because it's not every day that you look up at your screen, you see the White House press secretary in that famous backdrop, and then this world-famous celebrity there looking very grim for obvious reasons. Yeah. And he spoke to that audience, the White House press corps, and sort of standing there with the imprimatur of the Biden administration to some extent. And then he's heading over to our D.C. Bureau this evening, a couple hours from now. To sit down with Brett. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a good classy move because if we're going to have meaningful conversations about any of these potential solutions, you have to talk across Mm -hmm. some of the divides. Mm -hmm. And I think he's at least making a good faith effort to try. Yeah. So I respect that. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. In the meantime, Sandra, let's talk about the economy. Yeah. These gas prices. (laughs) I mean, look, I know people use it sometimes to score political points here. And I mean, it would be malpractice for Republicans not to be pointing out these numbers. I mean, the American people are seeing it every day. The prices are unbelievable. But over the course of this administration, over the course of this presidency, which has not been that long, gas prices have doubled. And I think it's very hard just from a PR standpoint for any president and his team to stand there with a straight face and say, oh, prices have doubled on gas. Do you know what I keep but saying? But it's not too? our fault at all. Don't don't go back just to Inauguration Day 2021 for this president. Go back to Election Day 2020 because that's when prices started going up. Prices started going up. market signals. In anticipation mm. of a candidate, Joe Biden, that clearly said – on the debate stage, that his intention was to eventually do away with fossil fuels. So this was an industry. This was These were commodity prices that went up in anticipation of what exactly is happening today, Guy Benson. So nobody should be taken aback. Or- so you would say it's more than doubled. If, if, you, if you bring the needle back on the starting point just a little bit further, gas prices have more than doubled, which is just – extraordinary. And is yeah. there any relief inside? It seems like it's just going to keep going up at least for a while. So, you know, I still dig through my my, my Wall Street um, analyst reports sort of to see where the um, the big quant guys and, all, you know, where, where the money is and where the thinking is. And Goldman Sachs right now is predicting a rise to $140 for oil, $160. They said it'll feel like a for barrel. the American people. Correct. A barrel for oil. I mean, that translates to national average for gasoline way higher than five dollars. And you think about this release. I just had Ro Khanna, uh, the Democrat from California on my air. He is calling for this White House, saying that there needs to be more urgency. This White House and President Biden need to do more to bring inflation and these prices down. When I asked him what his solution is for the sky high gas prices, however, he said that we need to be more aggressive and more bold tapping the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that's a bit shocking to me because, as I just said to Larry Kudlow, expert on all things the economy, you don't put 
oil into your 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 tank in your car. You put gasoline. We don't have the refining capacity in this country right now to bring in more emergency reserves in this moment to then refine into gasoline to put into the car. That's a struggle. So we've got to ramp up all of that in this country. And that needs to be an emergency effort on the part of this president. But they don't really want to. Not there. just to release the oil, but to be able to refine the oil to gasoline. They don't want that, right? Their base certainly doesn't want it. The climate activists don't want that. So they're stuck in this place where they're trying to appease those people. If they want to win in November, they well, better want that. I, but I, I feel like time's running out. And some of this stuff, I think, is getting baked in. One more point on the economy mm-hmm. and some of the finger pointing going on, Sandra. Mm-hmm. I don't know how closely you followed this, but you've got some people at the White House attacking Steve Ratner and to a lesser extent now Larry Summers, but people who have been calling out their approach and because they were warning mm-hmm. about this stuff for a long time. Still are. Yep. They were ignored by the Biden administration. Ratner, for example, who worked for Obama, big guy in that administration, he says the $2 trillion spending binge that the Democrats tacked on at the beginning of this presidency was a mistake of historic proportions. And they're fighting back against that. Oh, we disagree. I happen to think he's right. There was a little detail that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary Mm -hmm. behind the scenes, was actually on Team Summers, Mm -hmm. Team Ratner, saying, hey, let's maybe not do quite this because Mm -hmm. there were early concerns about inflation and other, uh, you know, ripple effects. Her biographer, who had a lot of access, said that she wanted to scale back that huge spending plan. And now, I don't know if you've noticed, It's become enough of an issue in D.C. that they're trying to put out corrections that the biographer did not say that she wanted to reduce the amount of money, but she wanted to, quote, scale it back, which is a distinction without a difference. I don't know what they're doing here, trying to fight over those words. Mm -hmm. It just it seems so insular and so disconnected to the problem that people are having right now that they're all trying to figure out how do we spin the fact that the Treasury secretary was actually – trying to restrain some of this spending that's fueled the problem. Let's try to say there's a difference between scaled back and reduced. It just seems like they're really missing the point. And not only that, painting a rosy picture of the economy that we're all living through right now. And it is painful. And people see it. The Wall Street Journal with this new polling out uh, finds that people satisfied with their finances in this country is now at the lowest level that it's been in decades. Those that are not at all satisfied, 35%. Janet Yellen is on the record this, mil- uh, this morning she was talking on the Hill saying the administration has done everything they can to bring down energy costs. Uses the example of tapping the, the strategic petroleum reserves and the historic release of barrels of oil from it. She knows better. She knows better. And anybody could have seen this coming. This is reactionary on the part of the White House that could have gotten ahead of a lot of this. Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, saying that there's more work to be done. We understand that. But this is a White House that has taken the steps necessary to bring prices down. It's not happening. It's not happening. This is record high after record high of gas prices. You asked, since Biden took office, gas prices up 105 percent. Gas prices since Election Day up 131 percent. There you go. Oil prices, natural gas prices. It's going to cost a heck of a lot, whole lot more uh, to cool your home uh, just for electricity in your home and this they, summer. It's going to be a problem. They keep saying we've done everything. We've done absolutely everything. It's not true. And that's why on inflation, the president's approval rating is 70 percent disapproval. Yep. I mean, I think that's where the proof is here. Everybody's feeling it.
We all are. We really are. And there could be more pain ahead before things start to ease up. Sandra Smith, fresh off the air. Thank you, And America Reports, along with John Roberts, every weekday, weekday, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. It's always good to see you, Sandra. Thank you. And come on with us soon. You got it? I think think I'm scheduled maybe tomorrow or the next day. Excellent. While I'm up here. We'll look forward to that. Good to see you. Thanks thanks, for taking the time. We will take a quick break and be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show from New York on this Tuesday. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, back here on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this story, a headline in the D.C. press, Raytheon, the huge company, defense contractor, Raytheon Technologies, is moving their global headquarters to Arlington, Virginia, in the Roslyn neighborhood. And Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, praised the development. He said, welcome to Virginia, Raytheon. This decision to headquarter in Arlington demonstrates that the Commonwealth, meaning Virginia, is the best destination for the aerospace and defense community. Now, I only bring this up because I've been watching Yunkin firsthand as governor now since he was sworn in in January. He won in November of last year. It's a race that we covered carefully. We had him on the show multiple times. We've had him here as governor. I was not shy about the fact that as a Virginia voter, I was eager to support Yunkin for governor. And he won. He won by, what, two or three points against a really flawed Democrat, but still someone who had been governor before elected statewide in a state Joe Biden had won by 10 points a year prior. Yunkin has been governing as a conservative, but also bringing the parties together to get things done on a bipartisan basis and sharing the credit. He's sort of been governing from the right side of the spectrum, the way Biden promised he would on the left side of the spectrum, but hasn't. Youngkin's actually getting it done in Virginia. And there's a new poll released from Roanoke College on job approval ratings. Remember, Biden won Virginia by 10 points. Glenn Youngkin's job approval rating, this Republican conservative running Virginia, he is plus 18 53 to 35 percent on job approval, 18 points above water. Joe Biden, same poll, same state that he carried by 10 points in 2020, underwater by 20 points, his approval at 37 percent. The numbers are what they are. The White House spin not working. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free every day. Joining us now is Ilya Shapiro, the recently former 
executive director of Georgetown Law Center's Center for the Constitution and author of the book Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And Ilya, I'm very glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with, uh, what were you called, the next generation of talk? That's fantastic. (laughs) Well, we're very happy to have you join the show. We've actually been talking about you behind your back, although not really, out in public here, about your situation at Georgetown Law over recent months and your suspension pending this investigation into a tweet. So for people who might not know the whole story, if you could just condense for us the basics from the tweet itself to the investigation to the conclusion late last week and now subsequently we'll get into your resignation in a moment back in january the day that uh justice Breyer's retirement leaked uh, i was in austin texas traveling and uh, had done some media during the day had put out some statements that evening uh returning to my hotel room uh after a, a friend's celebratory dinner uh, I was doom scrolling, bad idea, uh, late at night, right before going to bed, bad idea, and uh, got upset about, uh, you know, thinking about these things. I'm a Supreme Court expert. I'm thinking about, you know, analyzing the nominees. Just really uh, was not happy with President Biden limiting his selection pool by race and sex. And so I, I tweeted out uh, that upset, um, uh, and that was not uh, taken uh, well by the Twitter mob overnight. Uh, my political enemies uh, went for my head, and, and off uh, we went. I had about four days of hell. Uh, eventually, the dean of Georgetown uh, onboarded me. I was due to start work February 1st, so I, I was onboarded and immediately placed on paid administrative leave pending investigation into whether my tweet uh, violated the university's various uh, policies. Uh, that took four months, so it went from four days of hell to four months of purgatory until last Thursday, uh, uh, I was reinstated. Uh, why? Because of their vaunted free speech policy? No. But because someone finally looked at a calendar and determined that I had not been an employee when I tweeted uh, and so not subject to uh, to discipline. But it okay. turns out later, as I found out, um, uh, that the, the terms, the, the report from the diversity officers who investigated me made my tenure untenable that we'll get into, and I resigned yesterday. Okay. So... I remember seeing the tweet and the whole hullabaloo over the tweet. You've said it was inartful. I think that maybe you're beating yourself up a little bit too much. You were expressing maybe not exactly how you would like to, given a second opportunity, but you were expressing a disappointment that we expressed here on this show that many Americans share. In fact, according to some of the polling, a large majority of Americans agreed with you that a president coming out and saying, we are going to, at the outset, only limit our search for a Supreme Court nominee to an individual that checks a sex and race box. Everyone else need not apply. I know he had promised it on the campaign trail. I get all that. But you felt like that was not a good way to go about this. You also offered someone that you thought would be the best nominee, a different person of color. But because you tweeted the way that you tweeted and the substance of it, as you said, there was this big drama and a lot of outrage. I think much of it was fake. That's how this often goes with the mob. A bunch of fake outrage. The point is to punish you and to claim a scalp. And for four months, as you say, they investigated this tweet. Let's pause there for a moment. What was that purgatory, to use your word, like for you professionally, 
for your family, that must have been an unpleasant experience. Yeah, to say the least. Um, especially the initial parts when it was still recovering from the hell of the first four days where I thought I had you know, blown up my life, blown up my, uh, my career. Uh, how was I going to uh, provide for my family? I was transitioning from, from Cato to Georgetown. Uh, the purgatory initially was uncomfortable. Then sort of as one, one would expect purgatory to be, was kind of a, per, a roller coaster of emotions. And I got a lot of support, a very gratified, I think you reached out to me very early on, uh, a lot of friends and allies and either personal expressions of support, public statements uh, uh, condemning Georgetown, private back channels to the dean. Uh, I'm very grateful for, for, for all of that. And I, I kept writing and speaking, especially as this time went on. And By the way, can I just ask you, in, in that flood of support, because you had all the negative people out there trying to you know come for you, did you hear from anyone inside Georgetown who was upset by the way the university was treating you? So the Georgetown Law Faculty is about 150 people. I think there are three and a half, three and a half non-progressives. Uh, they certainly all supported me, but but nobody else uh, really. Some students, uh, you know, there was a counter letter. The the one that got all the attention was the thousand signatures on the Black Law Students Association letter. But there was a counter letter by the Conservative and Libertarian Students Association, and they were all supportive and aghast that they might lose the opportunity to to study with me and be involved in in, in my programs. But no other. No other faculty member, uh, certainly. I, well, I guess I could mention David Cole, who's also the legal director of the ACLU, and it's remarkable that that he did this because the ACLU has has gotten to be just another left wing organization, not not a free speech or civil liberties group. But David Cole said uh, what I did was heinous, but I shouldn't be fired for it because it was speech. So, so there was that. Yeah, um, heinous, but, a very strong word here, given what you were actually expressing. But so th- this thing goes on; it drags for months. And ultimately, as you said, late last week, they determined that based on this this technicality of your start date, the tweet had preceded your time at Georgetown, and therefore the whole issue is kind of moot, and you could come and start your job. I'm trying to figure out how that determination could not have been made five minutes into the investigation, as opposed to four months. And without spending, I'm sure, hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million dollars at Wilmer Hale, the you know one of the largest, most expensive law firms in the country that they hired to help with the investigation, not even conduct the investigation. That was led by the the HR and diversity bureaucrats, but to uh, to advise the, the, the university. So, yeah, I mean, it, clearly there is a lot of pretext and, and political reasons going on behind the scenes. They waited until the end of the semester. Students were off campus. Well, and there are also uh, like a bunch of threats, right? When when they reinstated you, you had people saying this is outrageous, this is harmful, this is violence. We now need a commission in the university to decide what is conservative speech and what is overt racism and all the normal, sadly, now normal things that we've grown accustomed to. When you were reinstated, even on the technicality, you wrote an op-ed sort of celebrating the win and saying that you were looking forward to getting to Georgetown Law and rolling up your sleeves and, and getting to work. And then just days later, you pulled a 180 and resigned sort of in this blaze of glory in a a very scathing letter to the dean. What material had changed between, I guess, in your mindset between the time that you wrote this kind of conciliatory, I'm ready to get back to work here op-ed versus the, you know what, never mind, this is irreparable? Resignation. I'll give you the, I'll give you the TikTok guy. Uh, I met with the dean at, at one o'clock, one p.m. Eastern on Thursday. You know the meeting lasted however long it lasted. 
I'm reinstated. Uh, great. Uh, I start, uh, you know, I tweet out uh, the news. I start writing uh, an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Um, sometime that afternoon, the report of the IDEA, the, the uh, what is it, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, Affirmative Action Office, uh, hits my inbox. I didn't get to read that until, I don't know, I don't know if I read it that night or, or started reading it the next day. Um, but quickly brought in my counsel and uh, and my wife, who's a better lawyer than all of us, uh, and a couple of other trusted advisors, and we came to the conclusion uh, over the weekend that th this was just not not tenable. That they had set me up to fail. Uh, what they did, uh, rather than vindicating me in in any way, was to effectively uh, say that um, had I been an employee, the tweet was a firing offense. Uh, and, and they called uh, it objectively offensive and harmful. And I think neither of those things is objectively true, but they are just stating it as fact. I think that's disturbing unto itself. And, and establishing the standard that regardless of, of what the expression and speech policy says, which says that, uh, you know, some speech can be offensive and that's that's protected, which is which is fine. Their actual policy on paper or on pixels is, is perfectly good. Uh, but this IDA report said that the next time that I say something or write something that offends somebody, that is uh, that creates a hostile educational environment. And, uh, and so I you've can't actually work under you've, those conditions. Yeah, you've laid out a few examples. Like hypothetically, if you cheered the invalidation of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court, if that happens uh, as expected, you know, could that be a triggering event for another investigation into you in a hostile environment where they're going to put you through another? Show trial, right? That's one example. You know, religious liberty cases, gun cases, affirmative action cases, you weighing in as your authentic conservative libertarian self, they've already basically stated that those types of expressions will at least throw you back into this type of uncertainty with a bunch of people braying for your head every time it happens. They've already lost one round of the battle. They want to win the war. Under those circumstances, the dean might have told you, and I, you said he did, that they would have your back, but then the actual document they sent you suggested that might not be the case, in fact, likely would not be the case. That's that's exactly right. It's In, in First Amendment jurisprudence, this is what's known as a heckler's veto. So the, the hecklers, the opponents uh, who don't like the speech, get to uh, get to throttle it or punish it. Uh, and... There was there was no way out. I was neither prepared to walk on eggshells for the rest of my time at Georgetown in the hopes that I don't inadvertently offend someone. Impossible, someone by the way. Impossible. Right, right. Right. Or subject myself to this other shoe dropping and getting back into the into the star chamber. And it would happen so, over uh, and over. That's the other thing. They wouldn't wait for one thing. They would wait for the next thing. And if that didn't work, they'd wait for the next thing. And on and on it would go. And the institution had clearly, I think, demonstrated that ultimately they are afraid of these students and would not come to your defense, unlike their defense of other members of the faculty who have said and tweeted, I'd say, much more object objectively objectionable things. And you've given a few examples of that. Now, you hasten to add that you were not calling for any of these former colleagues of yours to be sanctioned or to be punished or fired or get in trouble. But just give us a taste of some of the other speech that was defended by Georgetown as free speech while they were scrutinizing this one little tweet of yours. Yeah. Uh, 
here's from my letter. These are actual tweets by actual Georgetown professors. Uh, during the Kavanaugh confirmation process, Professor Carol Christine Fair, who's actually be become one of my big defenders of, on, on free speech, uh, she tweeted, look at this chorus of entitled white men justifying a serial rapist's arrogated entitlement. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. Bonus, we castrate their corpses and feed them to swine. Yes. And so uh, Georgetown did not initiate an investigation, but instead invoked their free expression policy. Now, let's just pause there for a second. You tweeted that you had a problem with Joe Biden saying that he would only consider a black woman for the Supreme Court. She urged the murder of politicians to be publicly executed and then their dead bodies castrated while she and others, you know, cheered and laughed. And that was just sort of like, oh, well, maybe a little unseemly, but there was no institutional action taken against her, not even an investigation, yes? That's, that's, that's correct. Amazing. That's just absolutely amazing. And I, I'm not saying that she should you know, face any sort of sanction. I also am not sure I'd want my kid taking a law class from <laughs> that uh, individual, but I think the, the illustration here is the absolutely shocking. I can't even call it double standards. There just seem to be no standards based entirely on whether you're deemed to be a good person on the team or not. And that's embarrassing. The hypocrisy itself here's, there is here's, embarrassing. Here's another example, sure. Guy, which is not, not as kind of outrageous demanding murder and castration, but perhaps more legally problematic. So in April of this year, well after my own tweet, uh, Professor Heidi Feldman, I, in my letter I write it as Feldbloom, unfortunately. I made a, a typographical uh, error. I don't know whether the Feldman-Feldbloom mix-up makes me an anti-Semite in somebody's views. But anyway, Professor Feldman tweeted, we have only one political party in this country, the Democrats. The other group is a combination of a cult and an insurrection-supporting crime syndicate. The only ethically and politically responsible stance to take toward the Republican, quote, party is to consistently point out that it's no longer a legitimate participant in U.S. constitutional democracy. Now, in D.C., where Georgetown is, uh, political affiliation is a protected category no less than race or sex or all the ones that we're used to. So this, uh, uh, you know, potentially is not just, you know, outrageous in terms of castration and murder and whatever inflammatory, but this is actually goes against D.C. code. And in terms Trump. of, you know, in terms of running afoul of the laws in D.C. when it comes to, for example, Republican students of hers that she was saying she's calling them you know, criminals and, you know, insurrectionists who cannot be considered part of a legitimate party. She teaches, as you note in your resignation, le in your resignation letter, she teaches first year law students mandatory courses so and no action was taken against her. I'm not saying it should have, but you juxtapose that with how they treated you. You ultimately conclude, I won't live this way. I'm resigning. Last two questions quickly here, Ilya. Number one, you reference a hostile work environment in this resignation letter. That's sort of a buzzword. Are you considering any legal options against Georgetown, number one? And number two, what's next for you? Um. I can't really comment on the legal options. Anything's possible, um, but I can't comment beyond that. Okay. Uh, on what's next, uh, tune in to your colleague Tucker Carlson tonight. I, I do have some plans. Uh, they're good. They'll enable me to stay in the arena and be even more effective in advancing these ideas. I think uh, that many or most of them that, that you and I share, 
uh, and uh, making sure that the the constitutional values of our great republic are are preserved and expanded. Now, there we go. Interesting. So Ilya Shapiro, my guest here, former executive director, underlining former, of Georgetown Law's Center for the Constitution. And we know each other a little bit socially and professionally. I'm sorry that you had to go through all of this. I think Georgetown has covered itself in inglory here. I think it's really embarrassing for the institution. I hope that they learn a good lesson out of this. I'm not sure that they will, but I hope that they do. And we'll be watching tonight, Tucker, 8 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel, for that announcement that I guess is coming from Ilya. We appreciate it, Ilya, and uh, we'll be watching. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Saw this report that there's new leadership over at CNN, one of our competitors. They've been struggling recently, I think it's fair to say. And the new bosses aren't really thrilled about the direction that network has gone in terms of just a left-wing, partisan venting and ranting, masquerading as news. Because they say they really only do news down the middle there, which is ludicrous. And apparently the new regime is saying they might give some of their more opinionated people an opportunity to prove that they can do the news again. And if they can't, then maybe they need to find something else to do with their professional life. We'll see. I think maybe it's a move in the right direction, given what they traditionally have tried to do at CNN. I'm just not sure if some people can unring the bell. We've seen them so clearly for so many years now. Like Jim Acosta, like, come on. Now we'll see. Maybe we won't if you're not watching. Many people aren't. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, brand new for you. Between 3 and 6 p.m. every weekday, that's the show. And we always appreciate you listening. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every single day. We're here in New York, here for the rest of the week and into the weekend, actually. A lot of TV duties. Of course, we'll be with you on the radio every day at our regularly scheduled time. Tonight, I'll be on Kennedy's show, Fox Business Network, around 7.15 or so Eastern time. So I hope to see you there. You can also set your DVR. Fox News alert. The Dow up today, 264 points at the close ending at 33,180. Last night, as I told you during this show, I was on a special report. I was on the panel with Brett Baer. And one of our topics was the Biden administration invoking, and the president himself invoking the Defense Production Act on solar panels. I know we'd seen this discussion during covid and that emergency, this is often invoked during times of war. But this president has decided to use this tool on solar panels. And it gets into a lot of complicated reasons. Some folks are saying this ends up being a gift to China. 
There's a lot of uncertainty around an investigation being carried out by the Commerce Department. We don't have to get into all of those weeds because they're hard to understand. It's hard to make sense of the decision. And also, in fairness, as I pointed out with Brett last night, it seems like the White House's own spokesperson doesn't really understand what's happening either. Because Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary, was asked, what's the emergency here? Generally, the idea is Defense Production Act. It's like there is a real significant national emergency at play, war or otherwise, COVID, pandemic. What's the emergency that is necessitating this move by this president on this issue, solar panels? And I want you to listen to part of the answer from the White House press secretary yesterday afternoon, cut 27. What's the real emergency in the solar industry for the Defense Production Act? Um, so let me, uh, I was going to say first, the president, you know, when he takes the Defense Protection Act, it's to make sure that he's delivering for the American people. Uh, it is an important tool that he has used a couple of times and it has been incredibly effective. So she's kind of riffing there with some filler words. Oh, he's delivering for the American people. She's turning to the binder page that she wants to get to. And then I'm not going to even play cut 28 for you, the next soundbite, because it's basically a minute of her just reading verbatim something someone else has written for her and not even reading it in a very compelling or interesting way. It's talking about solar power and the players that are involved in this whole thing and the power grid. She, of course, name checks Vladimir Putin and blames him. And so she reads this paragraph solid, just staring down at the book. Then comes the follow-up question, because the question wasn't answered. The question was, what is the emergency here? Not why do you like solar panels, or why does the administration want to move to solar energy, or what are the challenges facing the American energy sector? The question is, what's the emergency to justify this act being invoked by the president on this issue at this moment? And in Cut 29, you will get another non-answer. What's the emergency in the solar industry? Well, this is just a step to get to, to a place where we do have a clean energy arsenal. And so this is a very important part of the president's, uh, this is a very important part of the president's uh, um, uh, agenda in getting to that clean energy uh, uh, system that he's been talking about since he walked into the administration. So this is that, and this is a way that we felt that we can act uh, to, to get moving in that way. Mm, Well, I'm sold. I don't like picking on her. I really don't. I've heard she's very nice. She is historic. We hear that too. Good. She's not very good at this. She's been at it a couple weeks now. She was trying, though. And as I also said on TV last night, you can't really knock her too hard because the incoherence is not really her fault. It comes down to the policies being pursued by this administration. She could probably, and and circle back, would probably be a little bit more smooth and slippery in her saying of nothing in defense of these things, but it would still not actually satisfy the question. I saw a number of other people in Brett on the panel last night on Special Report quoted from a story about how there's 
a bit of a parallel, a historical parallel involving an energy crisis at home and a president talking about solar power and setting lofty goals and taking action on that front. The other president in question is former president Jimmy Carter in the late 70s, a one-term president widely regarded as overall a failure in that office. There's a Politico story that I mentioned on the air here yesterday that reports that Joe Biden, current president, is privately seething about his bad approval ratings. He is mystified that he's struggling as much as he is. He's bewildered by how the American people have such a negative opinion of his job performance. And, as usual, they feel like it's all just unfair. It's so unfair, so unjust that this poor, innocent, well-intentioned bystander has all these bad things just happening around him by coincidence. That's the aura that they give off and that these stories telegraph. And I think what the American people are seeing is not that. They're seeing someone responsible for a lot of the problems, which is why his approval rating is what it is. And if he's irked by the comparisons with Jimmy Carter, I get that. If I were a first-term Democratic president, I probably wouldn't want to follow in the footsteps of Jimmy Carter on multiple fronts. But I think the comparison is natural to make and in many ways is apt. We have some strong Jimmy Carter-era malaise vibes going on in this country right now. Don't believe me? Let's review the latest Wall Street Journal poll, which paints a portrait of a divided, downbeat nation in the throes of really a crisis of confidence about this country. Here's a quote from the WSJ story on it. The pessimism extends beyond the current economy because there's strong pessimism on the economy, but it goes beyond that to include doubts about the nation's political system its role as a global leader, and its ability to help most people achieve the American dream. Americans are deeply pessimistic, the story says, about the U.S. economy, viewing the nation as sharply divided over most important issues, which is true. 83% of Americans and respondents in the poll describe the state of this economy as poor or not so good. 83%. The survey found Americans in a sour mood and registering some of the highest levels of economic dissatisfaction in years. About six in 10 Americans said they were pessimistic about the ability for most people to achieve the American dream. The survey asked, can Americans work together across ideological lines to solve problems? Just 13%, one three, 13% of respondents said they were optimistic that that was true for Americans holding different political views. Those are some dark numbers. It's not just about Joe Biden. It's not just about the Democrats. There is a rot in this country that goes a lot deeper than any given political party or politician. And I call it a crisis of confidence for good reason. Listen to this. 
are you generally optimistic or generally pessimistic about? So those are the two options. The opportunity for most people to achieve the American dream. 38% say optimistic, 61% pessimistic. America's role as the global leader in the world, 38% optimistic, 60% pessimistic. The way our leaders are chosen under our political system, 33% optimistic, 66% pessimistic. Our system of government and how and how well it works, 32% optimistic, 67% pessimistic. This is super majority territory on pessimism on all of those things. If we have two-thirds roughly of the country downtrodden on the viability of the American dream, on America's leadership role in the world, on our very system of government and how we govern the country, that is very alarming. And it's not just about one party or the other. It doesn't get solved in an election. It goes deeper than that. Our optimism, I understand why it's not strong right now. Why would it be? But you do have to think about the consequences of the alternative. Give up on the American dream? Dump on the American dream like it's dead or bad? If we're not leading the world, then who is? There's only a few potential realistic options to that question, and they're not good. China in particular. If not us, then who? Our system, our political system. I'm not saying it's perfect, but what system would be better? I mean, you look at some of these parliamentary systems where they had to have what, like four elections in two years in Israel to finally get a barely functional government. UK has all these things where they can call snap elections and vote of no confidence votes and, you know, a lot of instability. I'm not saying that these are bad systems, but if there's a clearly better system for the United States, I'm not sure it's out there. I think our founders did a pretty damn good job. It's up to us to keep this thing going and alive and working. Maybe it's not about our systems. Maybe it's about us. It reminded me, and I'll close with this for the segment. It reminded me of something that Peggy Noonan wrote recently, and I think it's appropriate to quote her. She was a longtime, very famous speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. And I think conservatives have to recognize, you know, Reagan passed away years ago. He governed decades ago and constantly engaging in Reagan nostalgia and looking back. The country wants people to look forward, but we can also learn from history and Reagan's example we had this kind of malaise in this country under Carter, which is why I mentioned him earlier. Reagan came in. He was sunny. He was competent. He restored a lot of our confidence. He restored our economy, our leadership in the world. Leadership matters, and he had it in spades, and he helped rally the country out of a really dark spot that had been building for a long time. Again, it wasn't like Jimmy Carter showed up and ruined everything. It was building or you might say spiraling, Reagan helped for a while, at least, to reverse the spiral. And some of the words that he said were written by Peggy Noonan. And she wrote a a really devastating column about Uvalde 
and law enforcement response and all of that. And then she pivoted at the end of this most recent column of hers in the Wall Street Journal to a broader thought about the state of the country. I don't necessarily agree with every word, but listen to it. She wrote, I close with a thought tugging around my brain. I think I'm seeing a broad and general decline in professionalism in America, a deterioration of our pride in concepts like rigor and excellence. January 6th comes and law enforcement agencies are weak and unprepared and the U.S. Capitol falls to an army of mooks. Afghanistan and the departure that was really a collapse, all traceable to the incompetence of diplomatic and military leadership. I would add political leadership myself. It's like everyone's forgotten the mission. I'm not saying, writes Peggy Noonan, oh, America's once so wonderful and now it's not. I'm saying we are losing old habits of discipline and pride and expertise and of peerlessness. There is kind of an American gleam. If the world called on us in business, the arts, the military, diplomacy, science, they knew they were going to get help. The grown-ups had arrived with their deep competence. America, she writes, now feels more like people who took the expedited three-month training course and got the security badge and went to work and formed an affinity group to advocate for change, (laughs) which is such a good line, and it's depressingly accurate. A people who love to talk endlessly about sensitivity, yet aren't sensitive enough to save the children bleeding out on the other side of a door. I fear that as a people, we're becoming not only increasingly unimpressive, but increasingly unlovable. My God, she writes, I've never seen a country so in need of a hero. That is really tough to hear and tough to read. I'm not quite where she is, but I suspect that strikes a chord with a lot of people. And just electing your guy next time, that's maybe a start, a la Reagan. But it's not the actual solution. That has to be bottom up from all of us, I think. We'll break. We'll come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Recently, I did a monologue about the Democrats being in disarray. One example being the DCCC chairman, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, trying to get himself into one of the new districts in New York that's much safer for the Dems because the writing's on the wall. And so there's a lot of infighting and people were talking to reporters, sniping at each other back and forth on the Democratic side. And now AOC has joined the fray, backing his primary challenger from the left. So Jim Messina, who's a name you might remember, he was Barack Obama's campaign manager on the reelect in 2012. He reacted to this news about AOC getting involved and going against the DCCC chairman. And he tweets, this is Messina, this is so counterproductive. The Supreme Court is about to outlaw abortion. We could lose both houses. So we're going to focus our time running against each other? Now we're primarying committed progressives because why? If we lose the House, it's because of dumb bleep like this. I understand why Messina is frustrated, but he is wrong on two counts. Number one, the Supreme Court is not about to outlaw abortion. If Roe versus Wade, as expected, is invalidated, that does not outlaw abortion. That is a lie and misinformation that they have been repeating for decades 
which is why you get a lot of people saying they're against Roe versus Wade going away, but in favor of a bunch of abortion restrictions not allowed under the current legal regime because they think that all abortion becomes illegal because of comments like this from Jim Messina. It's just not true. Secondly, bigger picture, if and when the Democrats lose the House in November, it's not going to be because of internal ankle biting and internal strife. That's a symptom of the cause, which is they're losing. They're going to lose deservedly for a bunch of reasons. AOC endorsements is near the bottom of that list. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the program on this Tuesday from New York City, in town for a lot of TV, a bunch tomorrow, kick it off tonight with Kennedy on Fox Business Network in the 7 p.m. hour. GuyBensonShow.com, our website here, podcast free of charge on demand every day. I want to talk about the January 6th committee and their primetime hearings coming up on Thursday. So tomorrow night, we have the president on late night TV in the 11 p.m. hour with Jimmy Kimmel on ABC. Kimmel being a Democratic strategist, of course, who sometimes gets his talking points directly from Chuck Schumer. I wonder if Nancy Pelosi might write, literally write his questions for Biden for tomorrow. That'll be scintillating. You should probably tune in to Gutfeld. I'm on Gutfeld tomorrow. We're up against the president on Kimmel. Uh, Kimmel usually loses to Greg. We'll see if that might change since he's got POTUS on the show tomorrow. It is the president's first interview since February 10th, which I think is honestly pathetic. Howie Kurtz yesterday called it a slap in the face of journalism. I happen to agree. And to be in the bunker, at least on interviews, for four months, and then you come out of that hibernation for a fellow partisan— on a chummy late night chat show. It's just, I think, very poor form. But I guess that's what we've come to expect from this president and his team. So that's tomorrow night. And then Thursday night in primetime are these hearings of the January 6th committee. They've been planning them. They've been choreographing them. They've reportedly brought in a former ABC News executive to help produce them and pitch them and promote them to make them as compelling and TV-friendly as possible. On one hand, it is a bipartisan panel. It's mostly Democrats. There are two Republicans on it, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And you might say, oh, well, they're barely Republicans or they're Republicans in name only. If you look through their time in Congress, you look through their record, each of them, they have pretty darn conservative voting records, especially Liz Cheney. She's a conservative. Now, she, of course, is adamantly anti-Trump, horrified by January 6th, on the warpath about this, and evidently willing to lose her seat in Congress to do this work. Whether you agree or disagree with her, I think many of you probably disagree with her, I actually admire to some extent someone who is committed to something and they don't really care whether they win or lose the next election. Now, she and Kinzinger were both selected by Pelosi, and the Republican leadership's appointees were rejected. So that's where partisanship, right from the get-go, started to creep in. Now, the counterpoint to that is there was an offer to do a commission 
that would be truly nonpartisan or bipartisan in nature. The Republicans rejected that as well. So a more bipartisan working together option was turned aside by the GOP, which now brings us to a, I would say, more partisan January 6th committee controlled by Pelosi. Part of that's because the Republicans wouldn't pick door number one. I think door number two is flawed. A big flaw is that Adam Schiff is on this committee. I don't think he lends credibility or seriousness to the effort. Given his partisan machinations in, for example, the first impeachment imbroglio, for example, his continued insistence that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia even after the Mueller team concluded that was not the case, after their exhaustive investigation, Schiff keeps refusing to tell the truth about that because he's so committed to this partisan story. So having him on there, I think, does not reflect well broadly on the committee from where I sit. That's just my perspective. I am not as viscerally opposed to this committee and their work as many conservatives are because I think that January 6th, 2021, was a national disgrace. The fact that it happened continues to be a national disgrace. The lies leading up to it, the failures of that day, the spectacle of people trying to storm the Capitol and stop the peaceful transition of power and the counting the Electoral College votes, just disgraceful. And so having a full picture of what happened that day and leading up to that day is important. Is this group of people capable of doing that in a dispassionate way? I have serious doubts. Without casting aspersions on all of them, I have serious doubts. So I will be watching with an open mind. I'm sure there will be things revealed that will, again, make me feel sick, like I did that day. I don't think obsessing over it, as some of our competitors often do and many Democrats frequently do, I don't think that that is the ticket for our country. I don't think it's going to make a big impact, for example, in November. People are looking around their daily lives and saying, enough of this. We don't need to again fight over what happened. I think Basically, everyone agrees what happened was bad last year, the sixth day of last year. I don't think that the echoes of that are going to be so powerful as to overtake inflation, the economy, gas prices, crime, border crisis. I mean, the list goes on. And what I think is telling about what the Democrats in particular on this committee are trying to do, or at least are floating, or the way they're framing it, is that they're kind of saying the quiet part out loud a little bit. For example, here's a New York Times story from yesterday. Headline, January 6th hearings give Democrats a chance to recast midterm message. With their majority at stake, Democrats plan to use the six high-profile hearings, first of which is Thursday, to refocus voters' attention on Republicans' role in the attack. So the Times is explicitly casting this as a political enterprise for electoral gain by the Democrats. They want to use the hearings to change the conversation and maybe try to nudge the winds to blow in a slightly different direction for the midterms. 
That's the Times basically admitting what a lot of this is about. If this were a more serious look at what happened on January 6, 2021, we would not hear a peep about electoral politics. In fact, maybe they would do it shortly after the next election. They would reveal what they found after an election. That's not what they want to do. They're bringing in this longtime TV executive to zhuzh the thing up, make it compelling for people. And as the New York Times sort of lets slip, it's about politics and the election. And it shouldn't be that. But it is. And so does that color my thinking about what's going to happen on Thursday? It does. It doesn't make me slam my mind shut, not going to take any new information in. No. But I'm also not naive about who these Democrats are and what their goals are. Here's a detail from the New York Times story that blows me away. Democrats have been meeting with networks about carrying the hearing live in prime time. And Fox's coverage will be on FBN, Brett and Martha, covering it live wall to wall. There will be after reaction and analysis starting in the 11 p.m. hour Eastern time on Fox News Channel with Shannon Bream and others. Live coverage will be made available to Fox broadcast networks as well. And we know that the other networks and the other cable networks will be carrying the hearings live. So the Democrats met with executives, made the sale, and so that's going to happen. Listen to this, though. Activists have scheduled more than 90 watch events in various states, including a flagship event in Washington, where a large screen will be set up and attendees will get Free ice cream. How weird is that? I'm sorry. That is very weird. This is not a sporting event. Like, oh, let's come out and watch our team in the playoffs together at a watch party and we'll have some beer and the local creamery will hand out free samples. This is supposed to be a serious thing about a serious and terrible event in our country. And Democratic activists are turning it into a big, like, festival with free ice cream. That is very bizarre to me. And I think it sends exactly the type of signals that they shouldn't be sending, but they can't help themselves. I saw David Axelrod, the Obama guru, saying, you know, if I were a Democrat on this committee, I wouldn't want any part of this narrative that it's about November and the elections and turning the page or changing the discussion or shifting public views or whatever I would be focusing on the facts and what the purpose of this is. That's his instinct. I happen to agree with that, but that's not what they're doing. Because they can't. They can't bring themselves to just even feign nonpartisan seriousness. Now, I'm sure, if I had to guess, Cheney and Kinzinger would rather this be something more along the lines of what I'm talking about, but they're along for this ride I think they're probably doing their best. I think there's a decent chance neither of them will be in Congress after the next election. Maybe Liz Cheney has a shot. Kinzinger is stepping aside. They're also apparently and reportedly fighting internally with some of the Democrats on the committee who want to, of course, overreach. It wouldn't be a Democratic operation in Washington, D.C. without some good, old-fashioned, off-putting, alienating partisan overreach. So here's what Jonathan Swan wrote at Axios 
earlier in the week, January 6th committee's private divide. The House's January 6th committee is split behind the scenes over what actions to take after the public hearings. Some members want big changes on voting rights, including even abolishing the Electoral College, while others are resisting proposals to overhaul the U.S. election system. Axios has learned. So you have at least two Democrats on this committee, Jamie Raskin and to some extent the aforementioned Adam Schiff, who are trying to use this committee to agitate on behalf of a laundry list or a Christmas tree of left-wing wish list items. The things that they've been talking about, their most radical activists have been talking about, like abolishing the Electoral College. That's one of the solutions that they're actually debating in the January 6th committee. Abolish the Electoral College set up by our founders. Part of the way that we do our elections in this country, it's constitutional. It's crazy that this is even on the table. But as I said before, they cannot help themselves. I would not be surprised if they're saying, oh, let's do that whole so-called voting rights package, too, that they couldn't get even to 50 votes in the Senate. When Joe Biden was out there calling everyone racist and, you know, Jim Crow relic using George Wallace incarnate, like that whole speech. They're going to bring that back up. That's what January 6th commission is going to bring us a warmed over reheated dog's breakfast of all these failed Democrats ideas. Come on. Why not go for gold and say, let's get rid of the filibuster. Let's pack the Supreme Court. If that's the direction that they're even talking about, why not just get rid of all pretense of being serious or nonpartisan? And it sounds like that's the fight that's happening internally with Liz Cheney on the other side saying, hell no, we're not doing any of that. That's not what this is about. I think what this is about is very different in the mind of Liz Cheney than it is to some of these Democrats in charge. And the New York Times, again, told the truth. Democrats are scheduling it the way they are in prime time with a series of these things leading up toward the election to try to deflect away from the failures of the Democrat-only government that is flailing so badly in Washington, D.C. Would I like an accounting of the full truth of what happened that day? I would. Do I have full confidence in this group to get there? I do not, for reasons that I've just explained. And the fact that they are basically openly admitting that this is about moving the conversation for electoral reasons, I think gives away the game. So you'll have some tribalist partisans watching this thing in a field full of fellow resistance people, eating their free ice cream, gasping in unison, clutching their pearls, cheering, booing, all of that stuff, and then demanding change like abolishing the Electoral College. You'll have that crew. Then you'll have other people watching, trying to glean information, processing the information, and moving on. And there will be many news cycles between now and the election. I think it's crazy to think that this thing is really going to change the trajectory of where November's headed. And then there are a lot of Americans who will say, this is a charade. We're not interested at all. No, thank you.
And I would guess many of you in this audience probably fall into the latter category. I'm going to try to be in the middle category. And I find that first category, as I said, very weird with the group watch parties, like it's some sort of spectacle and sporting event. And I guess in some ways that's how some of them are viewing it on that side. Team blue versus team red in prime time for the purposes of politics. I wonder if the ice cream's going to be Ben and Jerry's. That'd be my guess, right? That would make sense. That'd be very on brand. So that's my take. We'll see how it goes down. We'll have a reaction on this show as well. In the meantime, let's try to beat Biden on Kimmel tomorrow night when I'm on Gutfeld. How about we start there? The Guy Benson Show returns after this short break. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Coming up in the next hour, Josh Krasauer will be here with some personal professional news and also analysis of a number of key elections, including some primaries and races out in California tonight. That's straight ahead. First, an interesting little tempest from yesterday, which was the anniversary of the D-Day invasion, a huge inflection point in World War II in the European theater, of course. President Biden, for the second year in a row, appeared to be overlooking that significant military anniversary in our history. They put nothing out about it last year on D-Day. This year, crickets again, until some folks here at Fox News started talking about it publicly, tweeting about it, mentioning it on air, Brett Bayer and others. And wouldn't you know, with a few hours to spare into the evening, they finally put out a tweet. I wonder if they were almost shamed into it. Like, oh, whoops, we missed this again. Maybe D-Day was not historically diverse enough to be on their front burners, but they were able to play catch up and say, okay, here's a tweet honoring D-Day, fine. I guess I prefer that to Biden coming out and spinning some of his famous tall tales. I think he was about two years old on D-Day. He'd been like, I remember D-Day like it was yesterday. I was there. I remember it as clear as if it were yesterday. My grandpappy said, there's the beach, son. Good luck. And I stormed it. I strangled nine Nazis to death with my bare hands. Not a joke. No joke. I was there. It's a creepy whisper. I prefer just, you know, a belated tweet to one of grandpa's stories that no one really believes. But hey, at least they were responsive. Maybe there is something to be said of them obsessing over Twitter because occasionally they'll actually find something that they've done wrong and course correct at the last minute. All right, final hour, Guy Benson Show, coming up. Don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on this Tuesday from New York City. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in. It's 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, 5 to 6 for the happy hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Terrific, delicious, expanding, very Finnish. But America is falling in love with the Long Drink. I'm a huge fan. We got our new shipment 
two or three days ago at the house. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website. You can see where it's sold near you. Just type in your zip code. They are now close to, I believe, 40 states in. TheLongDrink.com. And I continue to hear from you guys as you try it and get hooked. And it's perfect as the weather heats up, which is very much happening across the country. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day on demand, plus all the other goodies at the website, GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, over on the podcast side, which continues to grow. We are grateful for that. And on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern hour, sometime in there with my dear friend that's on FBN. Joining us now to kick off our final hour, it's Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal for now, and Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be back on the show, Guy. So I've given you that same intro and announced that same bio for you. Now, basically every time you've been on the show for years, but you made an announcement earlier today on social media, very exciting in terms of your career, starting when you are moving where? Starting July 11th, I will be moving to Axios, where I will be their senior uh, politics correspondent and also authoring a Sunday newsletter uh, that's very if – if you read Against the Grain, which I do now for National Journal, it's going to be in that same spirit, that same uh, zeitgeist, uh, and uh, it's going to be – Go to, go to my Twitter and you can sign up to make sure you make, get that in your inboxes uh, when I do start at Axios in July. But it's a really, really exciting opportunity. They have a great team at Axios. It'll be sad. I've been at National Journal for 12 years. It's been a great, great place to work. But uh, Axios is, is, is a great company, fast growing and uh, committed to the same kind of objective journalism that I've defined my career around. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. I know it's going to be National Journal's loss and the gain of Axios. And I just hope you keep doing what you do, because I don't want to sound like I'm being obsequious or blowing smoke. I think that you are one of the very best analysts out there in political media. Uh, I don't really know what your politics are personally, which I think is a feather in your cap because so many people are just partisans. And that's part of my job. You do pure analysis. You do it very well. And so it's a big, big get for Axios, and I hope people will check out your new newsletter over there starting in early to mid-July. So just kudos from all of us here, and we look forward to continuing our relationship on the air, even as you shift over from one publication to another. Josh, I want to start, speaking of political analysis, with your view on the Pennsylvania Senate race. I know that the primaries were a couple weeks ago at this point, Subsequently, we had a recount underway on the Republican side, an extremely close race, and ultimately David McCormick decided that he could not surmount a small but steady lead of around 900 votes for Dr. Oz. McCormick conceded to Oz, who is now the GOP nominee in that race. Famous guy, TV doctor, also a serious doctor as well. The attacks are starting on him, that he's a carpetbagger, that he's just a celebrity who doesn't know his stuff. He's not really from Pennsylvania. He's from New Jersey. That's what we're hearing from the Democrats. On the other side of this thing, John Fetterman, who ran away with the nomination on the Democratic side, lieutenant governor, big, huge, hulking guy with the goatee and the baggy 
sweatshirt and, and that whole look. He suffered a stroke shortly before the primary election, and there has been really a bit of a drama surrounding his health status now for weeks. I saw a report that his wife is saying he might not be back really on the campaign trail for another month. What's going on there, and how much does the health factor play into a race between a medical doctor and someone who it sounds like doesn't listen to his own medical doctor? Yeah, I, I, I've been talking to a lot of Democrats in the last week, Guy, that have been anxious and not panicked about the state of Fetterman's health, the state of his campaign. Uh, this is an interesting candidate, as you know, who is unconventional. One Democratic strategist told me he's not just against the Democratic establishment, but he's against the medical establishment in not listening to his doctor and, and taking the medicine he needed to avoid having the, 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 the stroke and, and the heart condition that he, he's currently dealing with. Uh, look, I, 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 I think there's some upside on paper in, in what Fetterman brings to the table. But if he's not going to be able to be on the campaign trail, and his wife said just today in an interview, it's not going to be at least until July where he's been when it'll, when it'll be cleared to campaign to talk to reporters to do do the events that any candidate would do, and it may be longer than that. Uh, Pennsylvania, we don't need to uh, go over how bad the environment is just for Democrats generally, including in Pennsylvania. Uh, it, it is a very very tough environment for any Democrat in any swing state. So, I mean, losing that time on the trail, losing that time to get out there, and, and with the uncertainty that how vibrant or how engaged he's going to be even when he does get cleared to mm-hmm. campaign, it, it's a big red flag. You, I, the, the pessimism from Democrats in that race has grown enormously in the last few weeks. And keep in mind, he won commandingly in the primary. He, had a, you know, he got sick right before the primary. He won with, uh, you know— Almost what, 55, 60 percent of the vote. Uh, it was it was a dominating win. It was a really it should have been a high point. And instead, you have Democrats just fearful about the worst situation possible, which is that he may need to be replaced on the ballot uh, if, if his health doesn't improve by by July or August. And we wish him the very best. We want a full recovery for him and his family. Obviously, I'm just putting partisan politics aside or ideology aside. It's a scary thing. He now admits that he almost died. It did seem like they were hiding the ball a little bit on how bad the situation was, how serious the stroke was, how serious an underlying heart condition was. They have not been exactly forthcoming. And then they give you little dribs and drabs of, oh, he'll be ready soon, hoping to be back soon. Then it might be a week. Then it might be another month. And I can understand why Democrats might be growing a bit anxious. One more point on this, setting aside the health stuff, which you might not be able to. It could end up being a defining issue in the campaign. But just in terms of his ideology, Fetterman, I think, is intriguing because he very much cultivates a not-politician brand. He does not look like a politician, that's for sure. Unlike the quaffed, smooth Dr. Oz, who's not a politician, Fetterman actually is a politician. But they kind of look the opposite in terms of their you know, typecasting. Fetterman is out there on the left. I think he is extremely vulnerable on his actual ideas. He's a Bernie Sanders guy, you know, single-payer health care. He spoke at a defund the police rally. He is to the left even of the National Democratic Party that has shifted left already. So in a swing state, especially in a difficult cycle for that party, he, I think, is very much open to potent attacks on his ideas and his stances. On the other hand, he does have something of a populist appeal in an era where a lot of people are disgusted by the political process and politicians generally. 
I wonder if one might offset the other. I guess that remains to be seen. He's run a good campaign, and, and, and part of it is that he's not embraced the progressive label. He endorsed Bernie Sanders in 2016, didn't do it in 2020. Clearly progressives, progressives across the country think he's simpatico with them. But, you know, he was not for the Green New Deal. He talked about more fracking in, in, in parts of Pennsylvania. He was the only Democrat that actually opposed the mask mandates um, once that it was clear that they, these were really unpopular in Philadelphia and other cities across the country. So he is actually wrong. I mean, he could make it, even an argument that aside from some of the things he said in the past, the campaign he ran for the nomination was perhaps more moderate or just as moderate as, as as Connor Lamb, the more moderate on paper congressman who challenged him. So he's run a good campaign. So I, I do think the health issue, and we're hoping for the best, it sounds like he, he has a path that gets back to 100% once he follows his doctor's orders. But, you know, if he, if he, one thing that, that came up in my conversations with Democrats is he's, even with some of his allies, they haven't heard from him directly. They, they, there's been some texting back and forth, mm-hmm. um, but but he they, they've not seen him. They've not heard him. We haven't seen video or audio of him speaking. His wife has been doing a lot of the talking. That is, that part of his health and the stroke, you know, having a stroke, that, that's no joke. Um, so that that's what's worrying a lot of Democrats on the health front, that, that you need Fetterman out there to be this, this hulking uh, persona, this populist persona, to show the voters that he's a different type of Democrat. And if for some reason he's incapacitated or doesn't is not at 100 percent health wise, that really could be a, a major problem in, in a very uh, tough environment in Pennsylvania in, in this big race. I want his physical health to recover fully. I want him healthy and happy with his family. I want his vote and his ideas nowhere near the United States Senate. That's sort of where I come down in that race, setting aside some of my questions about Dr. Oz. It's a numbers game in Congress. And Josh, on the subject of numbers, another transition here, to tonight's primaries. We're talking about Pennsylvania two weeks ago or so. There are a slate of primaries expected tonight across the country. What are the big intriguing ones for you? It seems like a lot of them are out on the West Coast in California. Yeah, the big races I'm watching, the national, the ones with national consequences are the mayor's race in Los Angeles, where a former Republican businessman running on a platform of tackling crime, tackling homelessness, tackling sort of the left, left views on, on how to deal with border in, in, in a city like Los Angeles, Rick Caruso. Uh, you know, he could come close to avoiding a runoff. And now, I, the polling has been all over the map, but clearly Rick Caruso and Karen Bass, the, the congresswoman, those are the two main contenders. And so it'll be interesting to see. Wait, hang on. So he could he could win vote. the mayor's race outright tonight in a primary, potentially? There is an outside chance, given the money he's been spending and given the fact that the biggest issue in this race is crime, the, the out-of-control crime in, in many parts of Los Angeles. And that's been Caruso's message loud and clear. I, I still think he, this is going to go to a runoff. You need 50 percent of the vote to avoid a runoff. That, that is going to be a tall order for, for Caruso. But if he gets like 45, 46 percent uh, in Los Angeles, a very a liberal city, that's going to be a big, big red flag for uh, Democrat, the Democratic Party, or at least the folks that are not serious about dealing with the crime problem. And I would pair that with the other part of the state in California, in San Francisco, there's a recall for the very progressive district attorney, yep. Chesa Boudin. That, that seems less uh, – uh, it seems pretty clear that the polls show that he's headed for a defeat 
and that the San Francisco voters, among the most liberal, among the most progressive folks in the country, are overwhelmingly poised to recall their district attorney, who is like one of the face of this progressive prosecutor movement. And that, you know, if, you, if, if, if the left can't win in San Francisco, if they can't win in Los Angeles and crime and law and order and homelessness, these are the big issues. It's, it's a big red flag for the National Party as well going forward. Briefly, on the California front, will we actually get results anytime soon? Because they take forever to count ballots out there under their system. Could we be waiting if it's close or if, you know, a margin, if you need to get to 50 plus one to avoid a runoff, for example, might we be waiting on pins and needles for a while, A, and B, I've seen some reporting that the turnout so far in mail balloting, et cetera, in Democratic primaries in California has been of concern to the party, just in terms of enthusiasm, participation, that sort of thing. What are you hearing there? Yeah, California uh, non-presidential election years uh, always have low turnout, and, and that's, that's why I think Caruso has an outside chance to getting to 50 percent, maybe not likely, but but a chance given that the turnout is, is more likely to come from more moderate voters, more more regular voters that are that are more attuned to his message. Uh, as far as timing goes, California takes forever to count the votes. You know, I think in a race like the, the San Francisco DA's race, if it's a clear, uh, you know, overwhelming margin, we'll probably know late, late tonight, early morning. But if, if you have any competitiveness in any of these races, uh, you're not going to know for at least until a day after the, the election, uh, you, and maybe even, we, we waited weeks um, to count ballots in some of the most contested uh, House primaries uh, in 2020. So I, it, it could take a while if it's close. I, I think we'll get a clearer result out of, out of San Francisco, though, uh, sometime early morning uh, tonight. Polls closing at 11 p.m. Eastern time, so 8 p.m. Pacific this evening. So at least out on this side of the country, it could be a late night for those people watching all these results come in, including Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal for a few more weeks. He will remain a Fox News radio political analyst and then shift over, as he mentioned, to Axios as senior politics reporter there. Josh, as always, thank you. And again, congrats on the new gig. Thanks so much, Guy. You bet. All right, we'll take a quick break. We will come right back. It's the happy hour. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. The school shooting in Uvalde, Texas is not exactly the stuff of the happy hour, but it is something that I want to briefly mention here as we continue as a country to mourn the loss of all of those people, 21 victims, 19 of whom were young children. And many of us are demanding and will continue to demand answers about the police response. Setting aside all the arguments, brooming that over to one side about solutions and guns or any of that, the police response is incomprehensible to me. And the changing story and narrative Ditto. I watched an interview a few days ago with a mother. CBS News caught up with her. She was the one who was handcuffed because she was trying to go get her kids inside the school with the police just standing around doing nothing. Her personal story of what happened that day and what she was able to do is breathtaking. And I think it's a tribute to her as a parent, but the way she was treated by authorities and then some of the threats that they were making Afterwards, if she kept speaking out, could that jeopardize her personal legal situation? The whole thing just smells like a cover-up and a scandal. 
And whatever the truth is, it needs to come out in its entirety. Anything short of that would be unacceptable. Now, as we turn to other ideas and policy and politics, I've given you a few of the things that I would be open to. We discussed that last week, and I wrote about it at townhall.com. One of my frustrations that I voiced was that whenever we have a mass shooting event that's especially horrible, we go through the exact same patterns with the exact same people making the exact same arguments, and everyone gets really angry at each other. Nothing gets accomplished except for deepening our divides and anger. I said, can't we just change the way we approach this a little bit? Just try something different for once. Someone who is trying that, and I give him credit, is the actor Matthew McConaughey, who's from Texas. He's actually from Uvalde. He wrote a big op-ed in the Austin paper a few days ago talking not about gun control but gun responsibility, framing things differently in a way that did not immediately turn me off as a Second Amendment supporter, which he also is, as he explains. And it seems at least like he's coming at this from a good place with fresher eyes than the stale political debate that we've been having. He was at the White House today at the briefing. And tonight on Fox News Channel, he will be joining Brett Baer on special report. That will be very interesting. I'm open to someone trying something a little bit different. Whether you agree or disagree, I want to give him some credit for that alone. And it should be interesting to see him on with Brett. That's in the 6 p.m. hour special report on Fox News Channel this evening. We'll break. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. And in our first hour today, we interviewed Ilya Shapiro, who was until very recently on the faculty at Georgetown Law School. We covered this whole drama, the whole saga, where he was suspended pending an investigation into a tweet of his. He twisted in the wind for months. The school finally came down and cleared him based on a technicality. But the whole episode left a very bitter taste in his mouth. And upon further reflection, he decided, I just can't do my job here. I will never be able to do my job in this climate where free expression is considered toxic by a radical fringe of students and an administration unwilling to stand up to them. So he resigned. He wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, and then he talked to us about it earlier today. Here's part of that conversation with Ilya Shapira. For people who might not know the whole story, if you could just condense for us the basics from the tweet itself to the investigation to the conclusion late last week, and now subsequently we'll get into your resignation in a moment. Back in January, the day that uh, Justice Breyer's retirement leaked, uh, I was in Austin, Texas traveling and uh, had done some media during the day, had put out some statements that evening, uh, returning to my hotel room uh, after a, a friend's celebratory dinner, uh, I was doom scrolling, bad idea, uh, late at night, right before going to bed, bad idea, and uh, got upset about, uh, you know, thinking about these things. I'm a Supreme Court expert. I'm thinking about, you know, analyzing the nominees. Just really uh, was not happy with President Biden limiting his selection pool by race and sex. And so I, I tweeted out uh, that upset, um, uh, and that was not. Uh, taken uh, well by the Twitter mob overnight. Uh, my political enemies uh, went for my head and, and off uh, we went. I had about four days of hell 
Uh, eventually, the dean of Georgetown uh, onboarded me. I was due to start work February 1st, so I, I was onboarded and immediately placed on paid administrative leave pending investigation into whether my tweet uh, violated the university's various uh, policies. Uh, that took four months, so it went from four days of hell to four months of purgatory until last Thursday. Uh, uh, I was reinstated. Uh, why? Because of their vaunted free speech policy? No. But because someone finally looked at a calendar and determined that I had not been an employee when I tweeted uh, and so not subject to, uh, to discipline. But it okay. turns out later, as I found out, um, uh, that the, the terms, the, the report from the diversity officers who investigated me made my tenure untenable that we'll get into, and I resigned yesterday. Okay. So I remember seeing the tweet and the whole hullabaloo over the tweet. You've said it was inartful. I think that maybe you're beating yourself up a little bit too much. You were expressing maybe not exactly how you would like to, given a second opportunity, but you were expressing a disappointment that we expressed here on this show that many Americans share. In fact, according to some of the polling, a large majority of Americans agreed with you that a president coming out and saying we are going to, at the outset, only limit our search for a Supreme Court nominee to an individual that checks a sex and race box. Everyone else need not apply. I know he had promised it on the campaign trail. I get all that. But you felt like that was not a good way to go about this. You also offered someone that you thought would be the best nominee, a different person of color. But because you tweeted the way that you tweeted and the substance of it, as you said, there was this big drama and a lot of outrage. I think much of it was fake. That's how... This often goes with the mob, a bunch of fake outrage. The point is to punish you and to claim a scalp. And for four months, as you say, they investigated this tweet. Let's pause there for a moment. What was that purgatory, to use your word, like for you professionally, for your family? That must have been an unpleasant experience. Yeah, to say the least. Um especially the initial parts when it was still recovering from the hell of the first four days where I thought I had, you know, blown up my life, blown up my, uh, my career. Uh, how was I going to, uh, provide for my family? I was transitioning from, from Cato to Georgetown. Uh, the purgatory initially was uncomfortable. Then sort of as one, one would expect purgatory to be was kind of a, per, a roller coaster of emotions. And I got a lot of support, a very gratified, I think you reached out to me very early on, uh, a lot of friends and allies and either personal expressions of support, public statements uh, uh, condemning Georgetown, private back channels to the dean. Uh, I'm very grateful for 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 all of that. And I, I kept writing and speaking, especially as this time went on. And By the way, can I just ask you, in, in that flood of support, because you had all the negative people out there trying to, you know, come for you, did you hear from anyone inside Georgetown who was upset by the way the university was treating you? So the Georgetown Law Faculty is about 150 people. I think there are three and a half, three and a half non-progressives. Uh, they certainly all supported me, but but nobody else uh, really. Some students, uh, you know, there was a counter letter. The the one that got all the attention was the thousand signatures on the Black Law Students Association letter. But there was a counter letter by the Conservative and Libertarian Students Association, and they were all supportive and aghast that they might lose the opportunity to to study with me and be involved in in, in my programs. But no other. 
no other faculty member, uh, certainly. I, well, I guess I could mention David Cole, who's also the legal director of the ACLU. And it's remarkable that that he did this because the ACLU has, has gotten to be just another left-wing organization, not, not a free speech or civil liberties group. But David Cole said, uh, what I did was heinous, but I shouldn't be fired for it because it was speech. So, so there was that. Yeah. Um, heinous, but, a very strong word here, given what you were actually expressing. But so th- this thing goes on. It drags for months. And ultimately, as you said, late last week, they determined that based on this this technicality of your start date, the tweet had preceded your time at Georgetown, and therefore the whole issue is kind of moot, and you could come and start your job. I'm trying to figure out how that determination could not have been made five minutes into the investigation, as opposed to four months. And without spending, I'm sure, hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million dollars uh, at Wilmer Hale, the you know one of the largest, most expensive law firms in the country that they hired to help with the investigation, not even conduct the investigation. That was led by the the HR and diversity bureaucrats, but to uh, to advise the, the, the university. So, yeah, I mean, it, clearly there was a lot of pretext and, and political reasons going on behind the scenes. They waited until the end of the semester. Students were off campus. Well, there are also uh, like a bunch of threats, right? When when they reinstated you, you had people saying this is outrageous, this is harmful. My full interview with Ilya Shapiro, who has now departed Georgetown Law, a very high-profile departure. It's available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day, the entire show, on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. are there certain fashion items sartorial choices that should be verboten in the workplace, even if standards are changing in a post-COVID era. Producer Christine has very strong thoughts, and we'll get to those next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch from New York City. On this Tuesday, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for being here. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. Eastern hour. Always a pleasure to be on with my friend. So that's coming up in a little while. But for now, as we close out the show, we will remind you, as we always do, that the podcast, the whole show, on demand for free, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a new sponsor on the podcast this week, Omaha Steaks. Delicious. I have more to say on that, by the way. Later in the week, we do a lot of grilling in our household. But you can go to omahasteaks.com, plug in promo code Guy Benson, all one word. So no space. My full name, Guy Benson, right in a row, G-U-Y-B-E-N-S-O-N. And there's an amazing deal for Father's Day. Less than 100 bucks, you get a lot of food. And we will expand on that a little bit later on in the week. But I just want to flag it because it's a limited time offer just for our listeners at omahasteaks.com, keyword Guy Benson. But let's put a pin in the conversation. By all means, go order today, because the window of time is limited ahead of Father's Day. But for the purposes of the home stretch, we're going to talk about a very different subject, which is this. Wall Street Journal story, headline, Finally, we can wear shorts in the office, parentheses, maybe. Once settled etiquette questions are open again, thanks to a return to office summer 
with fewer style rules and more casual norms. And some of this has to do with just changing social mores and standards of etiquette. We talked about this last week with people ditching plans at the last minute. People make plans, commit, and then either ghost or cancel at the 11th hour. And that is at least deemed by some to be now more socially acceptable. Along somewhat similar lines after COVID, you have people saying the pre-COVID understanding of what was appropriate to wear in the workplace is at least changing a bit. And shorts are being, I guess, in some settings reintroduced or maybe introduced for the first time in the workplace, among other things. So, Christine, you're over there stewing. You're shaking your head. You're angry about this. Why are you so angry about this? I like I like a proper dressing, and I don't understand. Okay, fine, yeah, COVID, we were home in our jammies and whatever comfy clothes, and that was great. We had a little break, but now we're back in a work setting, and I think work attire is appropriate. Um, I will only wear jeans possibly on Fridays, never with sneakers, and I don't ever want to see, sorry, your legs, Wyatt's legs, Dan, I don't want to see your legs, okay? If my husband was working here, I wouldn't want to see his legs. But you're wearing a dress and your legs are... Okay, I'm going to go there and this is probably going to anger people. I'm a chick. I'll say it in a cool way. Well, people know that. I'm a woman. Woman. I wear... What is a woman? I wear... Don't... (laughs) We Supreme Court hearing flashback here. So you're saying that women's legs yes. acceptable to look at in yes. the workplace. Men's legs, no? No. Why? I don't want to see your legs. It's, I think it's inappropriate. Inappropriate? Yes. Wear some pants. I don't wear a lot of shorts just in general. I'll wear them sometimes. I like wearing lighter pants in the summer. I'm a pants guy in general. So I wouldn't probably show up to work in shorts ever. I've done it from home in like sweat shorts, but that doesn't count. We talked about like the homework thing is different. Coming into the office, I'm probably a no personally on shorts, but I don't understand why it's okay for women's legs to be out and about in the workplace, but men's legs not to be. I'm going to say to you what to say to Bobby when we get into a fight. If you don't understand this, I can't explain it to you. Huh. Now, I will also say I'm not sure I'm in a position to be lecturing anyone else about workplace attire, particularly right now. Because I got off the train. I came straight to Fox. And what am I wearing for those who are not watching on Fox Nation or are not sitting across the glass from me right now? I am wearing jeans, which Christine says, I guess, is only a Friday thing. But here we are on Tuesday. I wear jeans almost all the time. I rarely wear anything but jeans. That's your thing. Is it? Yeah. I feel like you always do, like, the blazer and the jeans. Like, it's your thing at Fox. Okay. I mean, fine. If that's, I'm happy for that to be my thing. If that's my thing. I wear other types of pants as well. Corduroys, cool pattern pants very occasionally. But a staple is jeans. So I'm wearing my jeans. I'm wearing my Sperry topsider boat shoes, as always. I've got the athletic socks, which is not a great combination. I was up early. I had to get to the train. Then I'm wearing this sort of zip-up, quarter-zip pullover thing and a baseball cap. Now, I think for the radio, this is fine. Of course, I'm not going to show up on TV wearing this. 
my facial hair that I'm growing for a reason, I will say, is a bit unkempt. I did not really groom it properly this morning because I was in a rush. So this is not exactly looking like peak workplace attire right now. Peak Benson. It's not. So are you judging me over there? A little bit. I just said to Dan, what if I showed up every single day in a baseball cap and grew my facial hair out? Well, I guess I can only say to that, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Just a little call back there. A little turnabout. No, I admit, this is not exactly perfect workplace clothing choices by me. But also, it was a travel day. I will clean myself up. I'll check into the hotel after the show here, get ready for television in Kennedy tonight, and I will be more presentable for TV. And I think that's acceptable. You dress very nicely, no matter what. I am just a big believer in dressing for success. How you dress and how you look is, you know, shown. I mean, today, I'm going to be honest with you. I did a little more to my hair. I put a little flat iron to it, which I normally don't do. And guess what? I walked into work and someone immediately said, wow, your hair looks great today. A man. Hmm. It was very nice. And I wasn't offended, by the way. Is it bad that I did not notice any difference? You never notice anything. That's true. I'm not terribly observant about these things. Now, I will say before we go, I mentioned a moment ago that I've been growing out the facial hair because it comes and goes. I'll do some stubble from time to time, then get rid of it. I've got people in the audience, the viewing public, who love the facial hair, some who hate it. I get messages. Ooh, keep the facial hair. Keep it growing. Other people saying, get that off of your face right now. People are very brazen. It's like just ordering me around, total strangers in some cases, about what I should be doing with my own face. But the reason that I've got a relatively thick, for me, beard going here is because I'm on Gutfeld tomorrow. And every time he introduces me, it's a joke about how I look 14 or 12. And I'm trying to see if I can preempt it with some serious man face that I've got going here. Okay, this is a little scary, but I actually knew, and mind you, we have not talked about this, We have not, nope. I knew what you were doing. I saw it yesterday on the camera, and I go, he has facial hair. I'm like, I know what he's doing. He's keeping it for Gutfeld to show Gutfeld a different side because Gutfeld always said he's like 16 or whatever. Right, 12. That's scary that I knew this. I'm slightly disturbed, actually that you put that together. You didn't put it together when I said I'm doing it for a reason. You figured it out yesterday? Yesterday. Wow. Well, we just have to make sure Gutfeld doesn't get wind of this between now and then. I know he listens to the podcast all the time. I'll ask him to delete today's episode yes, before I'm, he gets to he it. He will, I'm sure, agree to that because he cares deeply about this show. So deeply, he can't come on just because he, he cares too much. He's too close to it. That must be the reason that he won't come on this show. Could also be that he's got a show at 5 p.m. and then another one that tapes immediately, so he's a little busy. But we'll see. We'll see if he writes the joke tomorrow and I can, boom, blow it up with the facial hair. Or maybe he'll throw the curveball at me and make a completely different joke about me. And then the facial hair will not really serve its purpose. Then I'll get a flood of DMs and tweets about the facial hair regardless, pro and con. I would look manlier at the grill with my Omaha steaks, though with this beard. But it gets itchy. It's going to go away. It's going to serve its purpose, I hope, on Gutfeld. Then it's going away. And then I'll come back every now and then. Right. It makes occasional appearances. 
as I see fit or as my laziness sees fit, really. I keep all my facial hair there. Thank you for that. And on that note, we got to run. I'll go check in, get ready for Kennedy. I will look TV ready, I promise. 7 p.m. hour Eastern Time, FBN. Back here on the radio tomorrow. Same time, same place. It's The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.